Hi, this is Justin. Today on Theocast, we're going to have a conversation about a pretty controversial chapter in the Bible, James chapter 2, and in particular, the topic of faith without works being dead. This episode is going to dovetail nicely with some of the things that we've recorded lately about the law and the gospel and sanctification and good works, and even how pietism ruins said good works. So we're going to consider James 2 and the content of that, and what does James mean? by saying that faith without works is dead. We're going to think about the commands of the New Testament, the things that we are told by God to be doing for one another, and we're going to think about how those commands are not burdensome because of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's accomplished in our place. We hope this is clarifying and encouraging for you. Stay tuned. A simple and easy way for you to help support Theocast each month is by shopping at Amazon through the Amazon Smile program. When you make a purchase through Amazon Smile, a portion of the proceeds will be donated to our ministry. To learn how to sign up, just go to theocast.org slash give. Welcome to Theocast, encouraging weary pilgrims to rest in Christ, conversations about the Christian life from a confessional reform perspective and also a pastoral one. I just threw a, a new word in there, John. Look out. People Bring are ducking it. all over all over the podcast, interwebs, whatever they are. People will make of that word confessional what they will, and hopefully they're understanding more of what confessional theology is by listening to Theocast. It is good to be around the microphone with you again, John. John's holding up our book, Rest. Well, if you want to talk about confessionalism, this is and go grab it. And all of its new fancy formatting. Yeah. And you could get a copy of Rest. For you free. You can buy that on Amazon. You can find it on our website in ebook form for free. And there's a forthcoming book, probably first half of this year, that's going to be called Reform, that's also going to have a chapter on what it means to be confessional. And just to, to so, break to break mold, man. I want to say thank you to everyone who donated at the end of the year, because we now yeah, have the thanks. finances to go get that thing published. So yeah, thank to get you. it edited, yeah. copy edited, you know, all these kinds of things. It costs thank money. Thank you for that donation. Yeah. So I am the host today, are the two of us. Uh, I'm not going to introduce myself first, because that is a faux pas. I'm going to introduce John first. He is John Moffat pastor of Grace Reformed Church in Spring Hill, Tennessee, and I am Justin Perdue, pastor of Covenant Baptist Church in Asheville, North Carolina, and we're coming to you today, recording on a Wednesday morning, as is normal. You're probably listening to this on a Wednesday, if you're a faithful listener anyway, because that's when oh, the podcast ouch, drops. Ouch. I know. I'm just coming in hot today, John. <laughs> you are, dude. So we're going we're gonna to have a, a pretty, I think, hot topic conversation today, because yeah. James chapter 2 and some of the content contained therein. In particular, this business of faith without works is dead, and Abraham, was Abraham not justified by his works? What do we make of that? You're preaching through the book, John, mm. so lead us off and take <laughs> us, brother. Man, I've been preaching uh, it's through James for the last few weeks, well, months now that I think about it, and I've been waiting on Time chapter goes by two. Quickly. Yeah, I've been. Re- and you know how it is when you preach a book, you read through the book, you read through the book, oh, yeah. and then you, you're in it. Then you read through the chapter and then you read through the chapter and the next chapter. You're just always aware. And so it's always been in the back of my mind. Mm-hmm. And then I, it finally came to the uh, getting and close. And you know certain texts are coming. Yeah. Like if you start James, from James 1-1, you're like, <laughs> chapter 2 is coming. It's coming. Oh, yeah. And what's so great is that, um, you know, I, I was able to kind of just say, there's no way I'm going to do this in one one sure. sermon. So technically we're doing it, in, it we're doing it in, in three, pieces. but we're going to do a good overview. We're going to deal with some of the the clear positions that get muddied. I would say this is a back-to-back episode. So if you did not hear last week's episode, you definitely want to go hear that. Uh, it's how pietism ruins well, that's good actually works. Two weeks ago. Oh, you're right. That was two weeks ago. So two weeks ago, uh, this episode is going to go along with that. And I how should pietism ruins good works. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And 
I think pietism not only ruins good works, it ruins good exegesis. Good, it ruins good mm. interpretation of Scripture. And today is a good example of that. Throughout the years, we have always used that. So today's going to be fun because not only are we going to find rest in Christ and some clarity, and I think some encouragement, well, I know for a fact encouragement because the Bible says it's all Scripture is designed for that. But I think we're also going to do a good, we're going to uh, walk through and show how sometimes we can allow culture and allow our own sinful inclinations to change the meaning and the purpose of a text. So that's kind of what we're going to aim to do this morning. Go ahead, JB. Or even how we're driven so much by, and I think this is what you mean, mm-hmm. by our our current church environment yeah. and the theological streams that we find ourselves in and the tradition of a recent period of time that we're all swimming in mm-hmm. affects how we go to a text like James 2 and how we would even seek to understand it because we're so prone to be driven by personal religious experience, which mm-hmm. we're going to talk a lot more about later, yeah. that it absolutely affects how we go to this book and and wrestle with what's there. Right. So take us away, man. Yeah. Give us some context yep. and just some so here's the yeah, context. flow of the book. All yeah. That. Context is probably the most important part of understanding what James is saying. You try to parachute down into any passage and get an accurate interpretation from it without looking at the greater context, you can walk away with some Joseph Smith interpretations for sure. (laughs) Brief interjection. This is serving the listener. If you don't understand the whole, you will do terrible things with the parts. That's right. And a lot of times uh, this has happened, not only in Roman Catholic theology, but I would say in evangelical theology, sure. we have we have become Roman Catholic at times in our interpretation of these passages. We'll also say that there are times mm-hmm. where words that are being translated and used are not always helpfully translated. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Just so you understand who James is writing to, this is will help you understand why he's saying this in chapter two. James is writing to persecuted, very Jewish churches, churches that are primarily made up of Jews, and they have just left Jerusalem. This is why he says in chapter one or chapter one, verse one, that they're scattered out. And he's twelve tribes giving indication that they're Jewish. Exactly. And they're underneath persecution and they're underneath not only persecution, but they're suffering. And so this is why he starts off in the very beginning of the letter. Uh, some, and sometimes people think James is kind of a harsh pastor. I mean, we learn from the book of Acts that James is a very wise, very wise pastor. I mean, he's the one giving counsel to Paul and Barnabas and, and Peter in this debate that's going on. And not only that, you can hear the heart of Paul, uh, James, even in chapter one, when he's talking about trials that they face. What is he saying right from the beginning? That their perseverance through that is the evidence of their faith resting upon Christ, and that should encourage them. But yeah, that amen, per- and even be encouraged by the fact that God is producing steadfastness in it, you. It's as you God's say. perseverance right. of them, right. right? And so he he continues on, and I want to say in chapter one, he is developing the theology of rest. He tells them mm-hmm. that their perseverance they should rest in. Uh, he he continues on to talk about the 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 gifts that they receive is from God's sovereign decision, not based on varying 
So when God decides to give us things that we need, that is not based upon our performance. The reason we know that is right before that, he says, now listen, if you fall into temptation, that's because of your own desires. And then right after that, he says, by the way, when you do fall into these temptations, God's gifts do not vary based upon your actions. It's great. It's really important. And not only that, your salvation, he makes it very clear, is based upon God's sovereign decision, not your ability to perform chapter two that's coming up. Uh, He gives us wonderful insights into prayer. He says, if you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, and he will give it to him abundantly without reproach, meaning that you can come to him constantly. So he's setting this tone of the Father that he's preserving you, he's persevering you, he's giving you wisdom, he's sovereignly saved you. And then uh, he ends the chapter, (laughs) and as he ends the chapter and turns the corner from kind of grounding them in their faith, he gets to chapter two and he goes, okay, now we need to talk about what's going on in your church. And the whole, if you read the whole thing in one sitting, you're going to walk away with this one thought. James is really concerned about the fracturing disunity of that local bodies. I mean, mm-hmm. they are, the way they're treating each other is not a reflection of being one in Christ. As Paul says in Philippians two, having the same mind. Yeah, he's motivated. He's concerned about division. That's right. And partiality. Mm-hmm. What he wants to see and is motivated to write about is unity and love. That's right. That's yeah. right. And Amongst the brothers and sisters. Yeah. Yeah. So what does he say in chapter two? You guys are showing partiality. And specifically, he gives this illustration where they're showing partiality between the rich and the poor. Mm -hmm. If you want to understand the context, right, he even says this phrase, these are the ones who are dragging you into court and Mm -hmm. illegally or wrongfully accusing you. So what was happening is they're now exiled. They are trying to create new lives. They're in new Mm -hmm. cities. And in this particular context, where it's getting back to James, that the rich are basically in league with the legal system and they're dragging the poor in. I mean, it's the whole nine, the hundred sheep versus one sheep illustration with David. I mean, they are just ripping whatever they can. And then these powerful people are walking into the church and James straight out says they're not believers. He says they deny God. He says that they're, they're coming into church and out of fear of what could happen, they're pushing the poor aside who they should be helping. And they're showing deference, it's showing preference to the to the rich for social reasons, not theological reasons. And James rebukes them for that. And then he says, let the lowly boast in his exaltation, meaning that the wealth, this is all going to fall away. But what you have in Christ should be the reason all the more not to worry about what happens to you in this body. So he's, he's upset about the partiality that they're showing. And then he turns the volume up even more. Uh, so he's he's upset about the partiality, and then he gets into, okay, listen, you say with your mouth you have this religion, and he's saying good, true religion is to what? Show affection towards those who have no benefit in your life, because he says the widows, the orphans. The orphans. That's right. He doesn't mean we need to start a widow orphans ministry. His point was there is no insignificant people in your congregation. Mm-hmm. Everyone is significant and true religion should reflect that. Right. And true religion shows mm-hmm. mercy and love and care toward the weak. That's right. And toward the needy, mm-hmm. right? Not toward the strong and the powerful and the wealthy. That's right. So then yeah. he says this phrase, if you look at uh, James chapter two, 
and uh, verse 12, he says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. What he doesn't mean by that is sometimes we don't understand. James uses a lot of Old Testament language. He uses a lot of um, Old Testament references. So Paul says it in this way, under under grace is another way. So if you've been liberated from the law, it's the law of liberty now. Yeah. So it's like you need to act and walk as ones who were condemned yeah. and judged under the perfect law, but you're yeah. not, but you're not acting that way. You know, this is going back to the illustration, Justin, if we were to use it, of the man who was forgiven an endless amount of money and set free, and then he goes right. and finds the unforgiving and, servant. That's yeah. exactly right. And he's using that same illustration. If I can, just brief exegetical observation to illustrate what you're saying mm-hmm. from verse 10, 11, 12 which, of chapter 2, which is where this occurs. James does come in to, to rebuke the partiality and makes it very clear that in showing partiality this way, that these individuals are breaking God's law. That's right. And he makes it clear to them that if you break any part of God's law, you're guilty of breaking all of it. But then his conclusion of, from that, to your point, just like Paul had said, no longer under the law, but you're under grace and now live that way. Romans six, mm. right? He says, James two twelve. so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. In other words, like you said, you've been set free from the right condemnation of the law of God on you as a lawbreaker, but you will no longer face that. You've been liberated and now live accordingly. Mm. Amen. That's the presentation. Whereas I think so often as we're going to get into later, we don't take James that way. No, we tend to take James as a very threatening, exacting, scary, you know, you better or else dot, dot, dot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. And it's, it's important that when we get into this next verse, chapter two, verse 14, which is really what starts the controversial section. uh, I think it's very important that we notice how he starts it, which Mm -hmm. is, what good is it, my brothers? brothers. Right? Yeah, he, he's not calling them. <laughs> right? He's not. Call, he's not acting as though they might not be brothers in Christ. Not acting as though they're not united to Jesus. Yes. Anyway. Yes. Doesn't call their salvation into question. In other words, no. Yeah. What good is it, my brothers? If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? Notice and he's rhetorically asking those questions. Exactly. And notice right. the uh, the way in which it flows. He's starting with the legitimacy of their faith saying, the issue is there's a problem with your faith. There isn't a problem that you need to do something to add to your faith. He mm-hmm. says the initial problem is your faith because your faith clearly is not in the right place. Because if you back up everything, as you just said, Justin, if you back up and you look at, if, he's, if you've been grounded in this relationship that I gave you in chapter one, then how dare you receive that and not see how contrary it is to then withhold. And here's what, here's the thing, Justin, it's not that people are being lazy. It wasn't that they were struggling. It wasn't like um, they were distracted. These people were opposed to it. Right. They openly said, no, James, we, we don't agree that that's what we should be doing. He's not talking to the struggling Christian. He's talking to the Mm -hmm. ardent fighter who's like, nah, James, I don't need to do that. Right. Or or the person at a minimum that has a pretty 
well-established understanding of what true religion is, mm-hmm. and they're not in agreement with the apostle. That's right? right. I mean, that's what you're saying. Yeah. Even whether they've had a dialogue and a back and forth, we don't know. Mm-hmm. But James has at least heard that this is going on, that you're in this settled position of being against, mm-hmm. in one sense, the faith once for all delivered and appropriate conduct in light of the gospel. That's right. And in light of God's redemptive work on your behalf. And I need to write to you to communicate this is how we live together in light of what God has done for us. That's right. Yeah. So then they try to use as an illustration against James that, nah, James, look, what we're doing is legitimate. And uh, you know, what's interesting is that as tender as James can be, he, Mm -hmm. he and Paul both have this gear and even John, they all throw some bows, man. man, they can. And so they come at, they come at James pretty hard. So James kind of flips it and he says, all right, he says, um, you believe, what does he say here? Let me, let me pass down here so I can skip You're over. So, verse 19. Verse 19, right? We're just going to skip forward just for the sake of time. He says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So in this, he is looking at this entire section. Mm-hmm. And so just to go back, so I, I, you need to read that because what the, what the load up here is coming is important. He's saying that in this, in the church context, they they feel as if it's okay to see people who are suffering and hurting within their family and ignore it as if that's no big deal. He literally says, mm-hmm. go in peace, like you're wishing them well, or as we like to say, oh, brother, well, I'll pray for you, but you mm-hmm. actually have the means and capacity to help them and you're not doing it. Yeah. You don't see it necessary to live, or I'll put it this way, sacrifice mm-hmm. for the sake of the body. And so they are, James knows their justification. And so he's going to punch their justification right in the mouth. I mean, he says, Mm -hmm. but you will say, I have faith and you have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. And I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. What he's talking about is the Shema, Shema. right? That's right. That's right. Where they would say, well, we believe this. And not only do we believe this, we quote it because how else would he know? Oh, Israel, you know, the Lord, the Lord, your God is one. That's right. Yeah. And his point was, he wasn't saying the demons have saving faith and they shudder. He was saying the demons understand who God is and they actually shudder compared to your understanding. The law should cause you to shudder underneath Mm -hmm. who God is and you're not. And you should, because he says you're, this is sin. Like this is wrong. You guys should understand this is wrong. So that's what he uses. And what he's using is presenting. And this is where I know just, we want to go a little bit with this, but they are presenting religious acts as proof of the legitimacy of their faith. And he's saying those religious acts, which we're not even calling you to, (laughs) these are things that you think are just justifying you. They're of no value when it comes. He says they're no good. Right. Uh, In particular, what he's pointing out, I used this phrase a minute ago. I know you agree with it. Mm -hmm. He is pointing out that they are not validated or justified by their personal religious experience. That's right. And we use that phrase intentionally because I'm just going to go and say it. I'm going to go and say the things, right? Personal religious experience and the overemphasis of personal religious experience is part and parcel of our context these days in the States because of the movements of pietism and revivalism, because that's what both of those things have done. There is a quest, you know, as Scott Clark says, there is a quest for illegitimate religious experience and it's all personal hyper-personal. It's hyper-subjective. And we point to all kinds of things and look to all kinds of things that are not prescribed in the scriptures as a validation of ourselves. Mm. And 
what James is doing in one sense is blowing up that personal religious experience nonsense and saying, look, here's what true religion looks like. Now, agreement, we're going to talk more about the relationship between faith and works and all those things and exactly how he's going to describe that in a few verses. Uh, I agree with you, just brief comment about the whole demons believe and shudder. Um, he is not, to your point, he's not saying that faith you know, resting and trusting upon Christ is inadequate. That's not what he means because no demon, demons might understand that God is one. They might know things about God, but no demon has ever rested, trusted, and hoped in Jesus for anything. Just be clear. He's going to make the distinctions. He's going to be clear on the relationship between faith and works in a minute. We're going to explain all that. Um, So that's coming. But what he's blowing up here is don't point to things that are of no value in demonstrating one's faith. You know, here are the things that are of value in demonstrating and validating faith, it's love for one another. Mm. It's considering others as more important than yourself. It's sacrificing for one another's benefit. It is loving those and showing care toward those who are weak and needy and marginalized, et cetera. Mm. And you're not doing those things. You're pointing to this other stuff, but you're not doing the stuff that really matters. But yet you're pointing to this other peripheral stuff that is insignificant as though that validates you. That's right. Yeah. Well, historically speaking, it's been believed that James is the first letter to be circulated, to be written. And James is dealing with... And Galatians is another early one. That's right. I mean, So put those next to each other. That's right. So you got... That's a great point. They're they're actually back to back. And they complement one another beautifully. Right. I said this in my sermon recently. You have... Paul is dealing with adding works for the mm-hmm. sake of forgiveness and earning righteousness. Adding works to Christ. That's right. So we as a piece of righteousness. So you receive Christ but to to fully receive Christ there must be an obedience in the law or circumcision. Mm-hmm. Right. Now that's that's the direction, you know, Paul's firing to the left. Then you got yep. James standing right next to him and James is firing to the right, back to back and James is saying, "Wait a minute. If you have Christ, mm-hmm. from Christ flows the spirit and from mm-hmm. Christ flows good works. And James is very concerned because he's saying, wait, you guys are grappling. It's almost like they're doing what they're doing in James. You're grappling onto the Old Testament law saying, I'm doing these ritual acts, therefore my faith is legit. Mm. And they're missing the point of the law. I mean, what is what well, is Paul saying? Galatians 6, 1, bear ye, or 6, 2, bear right. you one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. If you're new to Theocast, we have a free ebook available for you called Faith versus Faithfulness, a Primer on Rest. And if you've struggled with legalism, a lack of assurance, or simply want to know what it means to live by faith alone, we wrote this little book to provide a simple answer from a Reformed confessional perspective. You can get your free copy at theocast.org slash primer. Romans 13. Right. Love your, loving your neighbor is the fulfillment of the law. That's right. Jesus, Mark 7, you're teaching as doctrine the commandments and the traditions of men, and you're actually making void the word of God through mm. your tradition, right? He's saying. That's right. Especially when he talks about how you, you know, the scripture says, honor your father and mother, but you say, if if you tell your parents anything I was going to give you is korban, it is given to God, mm. then that's fine, right? So it's that kind of idea. That's, that's being right. pointed out here. You know, Jesus will say, in, in the language of scriptures, you know, we're, we're straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Hmm. That's another expression. Or Jesus will say, you know, you should have done these major points of the mercy, you know, and love. Hmm. You, should have, you should have seen to these without neglecting the others. You know, but instead you've inverted the thing. Yeah. And you've majored on the minors, all of that. 
I think all of that's applicable here. Yeah, we'll get into that a little bit in a minute. So let's just Sorry. finish this second. No, Keep you're trying. good. Yeah, well, let's get move. through this. Yeah, we got we're almost halfway through, and then we're gonna we're gonna light we're gonna light the bonfire here. So James says <laughs> probably one of the most punchy next to James statement about some other parts of the body. James says a pretty punchy statement here about their rejection of what he says. And so he says, do you want to be shown you foolish person that your faith apart from works strong. is useless? I don't know how you say it any stronger. You know, it's pretty, that's Kinda like Paul, that word know, foolish person, foolish Galatians who bewitched you. That's right. That you foolish know. person is actually harsher in that language than say you stupid person, you dumb mm-hmm. person. It is pretty hard. It's, a strong it's word. pretty strong. Yeah. And I don't mean like in a cussing, we should be vulgar. Man. I think he's no. trying to get his point of like, you no. have no idea how a, Offensive. This is. Mm. I love the two people he chooses to you, Justin. You want to know why? Is that he doesn't pick people who are clean and perfect. Not at all. <laughs> you know, Abraham and Rahab, man. You can't get more messed up people than that. Yeah. Uh, and so he's not talking about perfection, right? That's no. just not what he's pointing to. So he says, and, and, and he's he, not saying that one act of righteousness justifies you before God. No, clearly, no, clearly. So the law says otherwise, right? So yeah. James is using his illustration about 30 years down the road, different. Now, he will revert back to Genesis 15, but Paul is de- dealing with faith at the moment of his believing God's promises, and it was justified to him. And you're talking about the book of Romans. Sorry. Right? Like no, chapter I'm, four. no, I'm talking about the book of Genesis. Sorry. Well, yes, yes, Genesis yeah, 15, uh, from Paul. Yeah, from Paul. Yes, thank right. you. And then James is pointing down the road saying, let's let's take care a moment to hear Several to you understand later. that. Yes, Abraham makes this profession, but over time, you're going to see that there is going to be a reflection of what he has said. Not uh, obviously at this moment, that man has lied about his wife a couple of times. He's done some horrendous things. So if you think there's perfection in the line here, that's not what he's talking about. But even so of Rahab. Uh, but we'll, before right. we get into Rahab, well, I'll use the illustration of Rahab, then we'll go back to, to Abraham for in a second. But even sure. with Rahab, Rahab, out of concern for her brothers, you know, you can see this affection that she does something that is dangerous to herself. The way I would say it is that when she when she's called upon to care for what God has given her to care for, she does it. This is the same thing that Abraham is the illustration. Now, here's where things get tripped up, Justin. So let's spend a little bit of time here helping people walk through here. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith that was acting along with his works and faith was completed by his works. So before, let's not read verse 23 because that kind of gives it away. But Justin, first initial reaction people have there is to say what? Hey, wait a minute, guys. Uh, it's contradicting James you. And Paul, James <laughs> and Paul are saying the opposite thing. That's right. Like, this, is, this is literally theological schizophrenia. What do we do? Right. So when we read this, um, I think if you keep reading in verse 23, and then we can use the whole and interpret the whole, he says, and the scripture was fulfilled that, Jane, that, sorry, that, uh, that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteous and he was called the friend of God. Well, right there, who is James agreeing with? Paul. So we can't say he's contradicting himself because clearly he says that Abraham was justified by faith. Yeah. <laughs> right? So let's back up and say, well, what does it mean by uh, justified. Well, if we say here, was not Abraham's our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, you see that Isaac, um, man, I'm struggling. You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. Again, remember when I said that he's firing off to the right, he's firing away from 
one who is justifying himself. He's saying he is justified. And another way I would I would say this is that his faith has come to its ultimate end and purpose. Its faith has come to its completion, meaning, let's just quote Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, right? Saved by... In 10. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, but yes. Thank you, verse 10. 8, 9, not by works, lest any man should boast. Mm-hmm. And what does it say? That your good works were predestined before the world began, meaning that... We- we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for, for good, good works, works. Which were prepared beforehand for us to walk in. prepared beforehand, which means the ultimate end and finished goal is these good works. Sure. And even, yeah, uh, there's a lot more I could say. Keep going. Right. I, I'll comment when you're done. Right. So, and then this goes into Abraham and uses the same thing, but let, we'll just use this last phrase. And Justin, this is where we can kind of launch off where I think the confusion happens. Uh, he says, for, for as the body apart from the spirit, this is verse 26, is dead. So also faith apart from works is dead. Like I have mm-hmm. said before, uh, people who are alive breathe. That's yep. that's the point. People who, people are, who alive, are alive breathe. breathe. Trees that are alive bear fruit. That's right. It's so the, here's the confusion, Justin, and this is where I think we need to bring in some clarification. James, I believe at this point, and will further on in chapters three, four, and five, make it abundantly clear what these good works are. Sure. That's where the confusion happens. Well, a lot of it. A yeah. few more, con- I want to say some additional things sure. about the text itself and to maybe put in my own words what you just described as mm-hmm. to what James is driving at. And I think it's right that we would understand that what has occurred in Abraham's life in particular, because that's the lengthier example. He's referencing back Genesis 15, Abraham was declared just by God through the means of faith on the basis of the promises of God realized in Christ. I mean, that's the understanding of the apostles, not up for debate. Hmm. Then what he's arguing, though, is that something that occurred decades later in Abraham's life with a lot of up and down and good and bad in between was, like he even uses, this is Abraham's faith being brought to completion. This is Abraham's faith being validated. This is Abraham's faith being, in one sense, demonstrated. This is the fruit of faith. This is faith coming into maturity, right? All of that language is reformed and confessional language, that good works are fruit, evidence, confirmation, validation of saving faith. And at the same time, the reform through history, along with the apostles, have always maintained that, yes, where there is real saving faith, there will be good works. But good works and faith must be kept distinct. And you must keep that relationship intact. And we've done a lot of podcasts on that recently. Hmm. How one flows from the other. That's right. And works are not a part of faith. Works are not a part of our justification before God, but they flow from it. Hmm. And that's the argument of James. And Amen. yes, I agree that James is now you know, taking us to where you started to move us. I agree that James in his entire letter is outlining what in the world those good works are. He's already been driving at love and unity, caring for people who are weak, not showing favoritism, all of that. He's going to outline more of it in the chapters that follow chapter two. Mm. Amen. Yeah. Right. I think uh, if you go back to Pietism Ruins Good Works, that episode and the one that follows, I think we really- And even help. the one before that, Logos, One Sanctification, right? That's right. That the motivation yeah. from, you know, it's the guilt, grace, gratitude. Amen, dude. This is, uh, I'll just go ahead and jump into this now. Uh, this is why in First John, we hear the same language from- James. So first John 420, if anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him who 
Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born from God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. I mean, how many times is he going to have to say it, but he's not done? By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And Justin, here is such an important phrase. Put it on your wall, tattoo it on your arm, and his commandments are not burdensome. That's Justin, 1 John 5, 3. Justin, Where please explain to us why John would say, you love, look, if you love God, you love your brother. And if you love yeah. God, the evidence of that is you keep his commandments, which is what are the two great commandments? Love God, love your neighbor. Sure. And then he says, they're not burdensome. Justin, why are they yeah. not burdensome? All right, I'm going to say it briefly and we'll unpack it. In short, those commandments are not burdensome because heaven and hell don't hang in the balance. That's right. Those commandments are not burdensome because the weight of the law has been borne by Christ alone. Mm. He's done it in our place for us. He fulfilled its penalty. He fulfilled its requirements. He invites us in Matthew 11 to come to him and find rest for our weary souls. And he says that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. That is exactly what I think the apostle means. That's right. These things are not burdensome because we no longer are doing this for merit to earn something before God. We are not doing this to escape punishment, the just wrath of God that we deserve. That's been dealt with and that's over. We are saved. We're safe. We find rest in Christ. And now, motivated by gratitude, motivated by love, motivated by freedom, and for the purpose of joy and the good of our neighbor, we do these things. Mm. And yeah, it, we've said this a lot, right? That so often good works or sanctification in general is made to sound terrible. <laughs> we've said a trip to the DMV, a trip to the dentist, like whatever, pick your thing, whatever you hate going to do. Mm. That's how obedience and sanctification and commandments and all that kind of stuff come across. And we tend in our legal frame, I'll say this as well, we tend to divorce the commandments of God from God himself. Mm. And we look at the law as unnecessarily prohibitive. We look at it as this restricting thing, you know, and, and we just completely misunderstand the purpose for which God gave the law. There's all kinds of things going on, but they're not burdensome because we are free in Christ. He handled it. And now these things are just really good. To use the language of Paul, we've become obedient from the heart. And we now delight in the law of God. So let's do these things. Amen. Well, if you think about too, so let's just think about the nature of the gospel. You've been set free from an impossible debt. You yeah. could not pay. And then you are promised, guaranteed, granted the endless, righteous wealth inheritance of Jesus. Mm. And he says, it's kept for you in heaven by the spirit. Amen. He who began a good work in you will complete it. Your whole relationship with God is wrapped up in the sufficiency of Christ. And then he says, if you love me, it's that's great. That means you understand what you have from me. You understand the relationship and the connection that you have from me. But if you say you don't love your brother, you obviously don't know what you got from me because you could never in any circumstance receive such a gift and then reject others who've received such a gift. Mm. You don't yeah. understand it. He goes, that's why it's not a burden to love your brother. If you think it's a burden, then you don't understand what you've received. And he says, if you reject it, this is why I said the same language as James, because he says, if you reject this, you're a liar. James yeah. is the same thing. He says, if you reject this, you have dead faith. Yeah. 
two comments. One on the context of First John, I alluded to this maybe earlier. Uh, several conversations are kind of melting together in my head at the moment. That's fine. <laughs> the context of First John, he is writing to a church that has been assailed by apostasy and bombarded by false teaching. Right. And so these Christians have been through it, man. They've had a lot of people leave them. You know, a lot of people's telling them that what they, you know, what we do in the body doesn't matter and they're not calling sin what it is, but then are also just deucing out. It's like, peace, we're out of here. We're leaving you. And that's hard. I mean, if anybody's ever been through that context as a Christian where people who are a part of your church, who you have close relationships with, just kind of dip out and are kind of like, I'm done with you, Mm -hmm. that hurts. It does. And so the apostle is writing to people who have gone through that experience, and he is affirming them in their legitimacy. And again, I'm talking about First John right now. Right. He's affirming them in their legitimacy and helping them see, in part, that the people who have abandoned them have not loved them and have therefore, therefore proved that they are not legit. You know, because if you are claiming Jesus, you love the brethren. And these people have not loved you, so take comfort. You are children of God, he says over and over and over again. So that's one thought. Hmm. A second thought that I think really matters, kind of circling back to something we touched on a few minutes ago, but that personal religious experience piece. And one of the reasons I am convinced that we have such a hard time reading James rightly, or we have such a hard time reading 1 John rightly, is because the project of revivals, especially in America, and I'm talking about not just the second great awakening, but even the first one, and I'm not trying to upset anyone, but the, the whole project of revivals in the States was to produce an intensity of personal religious experience as the validation of one's conversion. That's right. In particular, there was an emphasis. I mean, this is the language of Jonathan Edwards and others, right? The, there would be this intense like f- period of fear and dread and trembling followed by sincere commitment and fervor for God. And I think we cannot help. That's so baked into the cake, bro, of our (laughs) church context that I don't think we can help but read the New Testament this way. That's right. And read James this way or John or whoever, whenever we see an imperative, whenever we see strong language, like you can't live like this. Mm -mm. You know, the, the, the redeemed don't do this. When we read that kind of language, we immediately start to think in those like, fear, trepidation, dread kind of things. I need to be shaking. I need to be afraid of God. And then I need to repent and give myself wholeheartedly to this anew. And that personal fervor and intensity within me is the thing that we're looking for. That's right. And that's damaging, man. It is. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, I, the thing I was trying to point out in my sermon is that we we want to feel something that's related to our works, and we want to have that significance. And um, yeah. you know, the confessions in, uh, under good works says that the, that uh, our good works can bolster our assurance; they can bolster Great our point, faith. John. Yeah. Thanks for saying that. Yeah, yeah. And that the, I, I often find encouragement within the body of Christ when I have the opportunity to show the affections of Jesus towards somebody. Because if you think about what a good work is, ultimately you're taking the nature and person and the words of God and you're reflecting it in word and action. It's like, that's that should encourage you if you're centering your life on 
the truth of Christ that should mm-hmm. encourage you, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean it always will, but it can. It doesn't mean it's the ultimate confirmation, but it can give that seasoning of life where it's like, man, totally. I can really taste the sweetness of Jesus. But then there are other times where the confession says that there are times where that's not the case. So right. you can't ground your assurance there. Exactly. But I want to say here, the ultimate goal of James is not the validation of their faith. He's saying you are ardently rejecting the priority of the Christian mm-hmm. life. This is mm-hmm. where I think he's saying, and yeah. I, I can argue, and I did in my sermon, and we will probably do uh, in the SR podcast, uh-huh. I can argue that the priority of the Christian life, the mm-hmm. point of ones who are justified, sanctified, and glorified by the power of the work of the Holy Spirit, by faith and grace alone, the purpose of their life uh, that Second Peter says that if you don't show brotherly affection, you're ineffective and unfruitful, not yeah. in justifying or proving your justification in the goal of what? Obeying the second commandment, which is mm-hmm. to love your neighbor. You're ineffective yeah, in that's it. That's right. So good. Final comments from me before we take it over to SR and I'm not sure exactly what we're going to parse out over there. Uh, we'll keep having this conversation. I think there's, there's much that can be said. Well, I, yeah, I, I want to walk through the, uh, several of these passages that just prove right. what James is saying. Great. Yeah. So we're going to do that in Semper Reformanda here in a minute. And I'll explain what that even is. If you don't know final parting shot from me, two thoughts. Uh, one, I'm really glad you brought up chapter 16 of our confession mm-hmm. on good works because it is entirely right that we would say, and, be consistent in communicating that, yes, we can and should be encouraged by our good works and by the good works of our brothers and sisters. Mm. We can have our assurance bolstered. That's what the confession says by our good works and by the good works of others, you know, indirectly as well. That's wonderful. And that's the grace and kindness of God to us because we're just seeing a new, I'm not what I once was. I'm not what I used to be. And I'm really encouraged by that. Mm. And others are observing that in me and I'm observing it in others. It's like, hey man, the spirit of God's at work in us. This is good. We should absolutely live and talk like that. But the thing is, is we're trying to hold those things in an appropriate place. We're not trying to ground our justification and our assurance on those things. We are just receiving encouragement in terms of our assurance from those things. Mm. So that's the distinction that we want to be careful to maintain. And yeah, I'm totally with you, John. Can I just that, add one passage yeah. to prove what you just said about yeah. the confession? This is sure. Jesus as he's about to go to the cross. He's trying to encourage his disciples in John 15. And he says, uh, no, sorry, this is wrong. Um, where did, oh, here we go. Um, yeah, John 15, 11. Thank you. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Hey, Justin, do you think the joy of Christ in our life is going to agree to bring us some assurance? <laughs> Maybe just a little. Uh, A skosh. Yeah, just a little bit. The joy of Jesus is a great way to find some assurance. That's right. He says this, this is my commitment that you love one another. He says, I've said these things to you that you may have my joy. Here's what I've told you. Mm. This is my commandment that you love one another. Mm. So that you can see why that would be a priority for a Christian to go, okay, God's promised me joy. He's promised me unity. He's promised me strength. And he didn't give me religious acts that are based upon my individual performance. He says, take what you've, why do we love first John? We love because he first loved us. We'll talk more about that. All right. So my final parting shot that might also lead us over into SR and give us some punchy fodder (laughs) for conversation. Just like I think is going on here in the early church. Same thing happens today for us where we are making a big deal about certain things 
in our personal religious experience and our personal devotional lives as the vindication and authentication of us. When in reality, we are neglecting the things that are prescribed very clearly over and over again in the New Testament for us who are in Christ. And that's not good. Mm-mm. Whenever we do that, we're always prone to. And I think it's, it occurred 2,000 years ago here. It occurs in our day-to-day. We may discuss that in SR. We may not. I'll leave it with you, and you'll have to tune in to find out. The SR podcast, SR stands for Semper Reformanda. So this comes from you know the phrase of the Reformation, the church reformed, always reforming. And this is an extra episode that John and I record each week for our members, people who have partnered with Theocast in various ways, including financially supporting the ministry. And Simple Reformata is not just a podcast, though. It's a community of people who are embracing this kind of confessional theology that we talk about here every week. And so there's an app that's got a great community building. We're all on there a lot and encouraging each other and asking each other questions and all those kinds of things, helping each other find churches. It's really good. So if you're interested in Semper Reformanda and what that would mean, what that would look like for you to partner with Theocast, you can find information about that on our website, which is theocast.org. And John and I are headed over there right now. And we're going to keep having this enjoyable, good, helpful conversation. So you could, if you become a member, tune in and be a part of this conversation, even today. Today could be the day. So anyway, for many of you, you yeah, let the let the listener understand. Uh, for many of you, we're going to talk with you over there on SR. For others who might not be SR members yet, we'll talk with you again in regular format next week. Grace and peace. Mm-hmm.